All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Education was the dominant issue in the last Virginia elections. But what was so interesting is how the left responded to this whole question of school choice, educational freedom. And you're probably not surprised, we all got called racists. In fact, we're now being told that school choice is just some sort of, you know, hidden dog whistle, where really it's just a chance for a bunch of white supremacists to get together and share their ideas while excluding other people. Well, personally, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. And we have a very special guest with us here today who's going to explain that. His name is Corey DeAngelis. I'm going to read off some of his bio here because you need to know who you're about to hear from. Because as I like to tell my listeners, you know, this, this whole program is about helping you make the argument. And I cannot think of a better guy to have on to help you make the argument to your friends, your families, your coworkers on why genuine educational freedom is so critical for every student. But I would even argue especially for those students that are currently being denied any sort of access to choice within our public school system. So we have Corey DeAngelis is the national director of the research or national director of research at the American Federation for Children and executive director at the Educational Freedom Institute and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at Reason Foundation, and he was named on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for his work on education policy, he also received the Buckley Award from Ameri for excuse me the Buckley Award from America's Future in 2020. Corey, thank you very much for being on with us on making the argument. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Nick. So, real quick, you know, I, we just gave everyone kind of a quick overview of of the you know the academic prowess you represent. What got? Why is this the issue? You know, because again, relatively young guy, you know, why, why is this the issue that just really drives you and then that you are passionate about? Well, actually, I attended government schools for 13 years growing up. So if I make any mistakes on the podcast, that's probably <laughs> one of the reasons. But uh, but really, in high school, I had the opportunity to go something called to go to something called a magnet school, which is still a government run school run by the district. But it you're not residentially assigned to it. So these types of schools don't have as much monopoly power as the traditional system where kids are residentially assigned uh, based on geography. Uh, and I saw that that had a big positive impact on my life trajectory because it was a, a better opportunity for me. And I would like other families to have educational options at the same time, but it shouldn't be limited to schools that are operated by the government. The money should follow the child to wherever they're getting an education, which could be a magnet school. It could be your government-run residentially assigned school. It could be a charter school, private school, or homeschooling option. The education funding is meant for educating the child, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution. So we should fund the student as opposed to the system. And so that really opened my eyes to these kinds of opportunities growing up. 
And then also I did my bachelor's and master's in economics, which really opened my eyes to the big problem in K-12 education in America, which happens to be we have these geographic residentially assigned monopolies that are further buttressed by compulsory property tax funding. And uh, so that opened my eyes thinking about it through an economic lens. Uh, But then also I started doing my PhD at the University of Arkansas after that, where I started to look at the real life impacts of these programs on the ground. My first study looked at the Milwaukee voucher program and how that had an association with the reduction in crime at the same time. And then lastly, look, if you fix education, you can fix about everything else. A lot of the problems we're seeing in society today, I would argue, are caused by 13 years of indoctrination and miseducation. So everything you just said there sounds perfectly reasonable. And, and here's the crazy part. I didn't hear a hint of, of white supremacy all right, or fascist ideology and anything you just said. It was all about providing freedom and it was about providing options and choice and, and funding to any student right, of, of any background. And so here's, here's what I find fascinating. We saw this in Virginia, and, and I've, we've seen it historically, but it really came out in Virginia this year when we were seeing all the problems that was popping up in our kids' curriculum. And, and it was fascinating to watch the left say things like, CRT is not in your elementary schools. And then we would point out, like I pointed this out in a debate. I said, okay, well, here's the Virginia Department of Education website, right? I didn't go to Heritage Foundation. I didn't go to Reason. I didn't go to Cato. I went to the Virginia Department of Education website, and I read off what was there, right? I didn't, I didn't make it up. Mm-hmm. I didn't take it out of context. Read it off what was there. And I still had people on the left saying, well, that's ridiculous. It's, it's not there. And then all of a sudden it was, well, okay, if it is there, the only reason you don't want it there is because you're a racist. It's like, so wait a second. A second ago, a second ago, you were promised me this wasn't there because you recognized that there was something you know, problematic about having this kind of curriculum in our schools. And now you're telling me I'm a racist if I don't want it there. And, and I started to dig into this question, right? Because I want, I genuinely want to understand where somebody that, that opposes school choice or greater educational freedom, where they're coming from, because it just seems so intuitive. And, and here's what I discovered. Now, I discovered that there's, there's one part of this that is entrenched. You, there's a lot of money to be made as being a part of the government monopoly. Right? If, if you're a part of that group, if, if you're you know, within the lobbying organizations, within the you know, very, very high-paid administrators group, this can be a very sweet deal. And, and I'm not saying you don't care about education, but don't tell me there isn't a, a conflict of interest there with respect to maintaining the status quo. So right off the bat, I, okay, I understand why some of these people are just engaging in this kind of propaganda to tell me, you know, well, you're a racist if you don't agree with this. Then I talked to some other people. That, that have never accused me of being a racist for supporting school choice, never accused me of being a bad person, but they don't like it. I, I was like, okay, why is this? And here's what I found. I found that for some people, um, especially some, some older people that had kind of fought through the civil rights movement within Virginia um, and other places around the country, they had seen the word school choice be used by people that legitimately, I mean, they, they did have a racist angle. And, and it's almost like they, they dirtied this term for a group of people so that when we use it, it, it kind of hurts the conversation. So here, here's what I'd like to do. You know, fully acknowledging that any, any idea can be abused or it can be perverted or it can be used for something nefarious. It doesn't mean the idea itself is bad. So how do we fight back against this narrative that when we say school choice, we're really dog whistling for segregation or something like that? When, again, I know for me and I know for everyone I know within the school choice movement, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything with individual empowerment. So how do we fight against that narrative? 
Well, let's point out the uh, history of the public schools. There's racist history in public schools. And if you look at Virginia, the Virginia teachers unions uh, buddied up with the segregationists in the 1950s and fought against school choice. They fought against vouchers to go to private schools because these segregationists knew that it would lead to racial integration as predicted by Milton Friedman in his, in, in his works in the 1950s as well. Uh, and Phil Magnus at AIER actually wrote a great Wall Street Journal article about this. He actually titled it uh, "School: uh, the Racist, the Anti-Racist History of School Choice." So there's two sides to the story here that it could it could be used for um, means of segregation, but it could also be used for means of integration. And segregationists have opposed school choice because they know at least integration. And if you look at the evidence today. That's what's more important, right? What happens on the ground today? Well, first, the public schools are already uh, severely segregated because they are your, your attendance is determined by your zip code, which are also segregated. So if you want to talk about systemic racism, one of the best examples of systemic racism in the United States today are the, the racially and economically segregated government-run schools of today. Um, but if you look at the evidence, uh, Ed Choice, the one, two, threes of school choice, they've summarized about nine studies that exist on the topic. And eight of the nine studies find that on average, overall, in general, private school voucher programs, having the money follow the child to a private school if they so choose, actually leads to net racial integration. So we got to look at the actual evidence today. And the preponderance of the evidence suggests that private school choice leads to integration. And look, if the, even if they got the history right on this argument against school choice, it's something called a genetic fallacy. And you alluded to this in your question that just because something might have had nefarious means a long time ago, um, doesn't mean that the means for using that those types of programs are the same today. And a lot of the same people that will try to paint school choice as racist because of some of its history, they, when you ask them, and I was in a debate with a University of Illinois professor that made this their entire argument against school choice, I just asked them, well, are you against the minimum wage too because of its history? Are you against gun control laws because of its history? And they would not answer that. And the reason that they didn't answer because is we all knew that this person was a left-leaning individual that supported those types of policies. They're just using the racist la label to attack any type of policy that they didn't like anyway. No, I, and look, the, the and to get more to your question as well is, I don't even call it school choice anymore. I, I talk about this in terms of funding students directly and empowering families or funding students as opposed to systems, just like we do with so many other taxpayer funded initiatives like Pell Grants for higher education and pre-K programs. The money follows the decision of the family to a public or private religious or non-religious provider. Food stamps. We don't tell low-income families they must use their food stamp dollars at a residentially assigned government-run provider of groceries. That would be absolutely ridiculous. Instead, the funding goes to the family. They could choose Walmart if they want, but they could also choose Safeway, Trader Joe's, or any other provider. Let's just apply that same logic to K-12 education and fund people as opposed to government buildings. No, that, that's a great point. And I, I pointed this out recently, too, on, on a different platform where 
you know, somebody kept saying like, well, I don't get to choose how my defense dollars are spent. I said, well, okay, you're, ma you're making this fallacious argument which says that because certain dollars are spent or allocated a certain way, therefore all tax dollars must be spent and allocated a certain way. And I know you don't believe that. And I, the reason why I know you don't believe that is because you would never dream of coming in and telling everyone with an EBT card, hey, never mind, we're going to take that back and we're going to assign you a government grocery store, which you're now going to be required to shop at. And, and, and I, I love using that example because... If, if you look at, I've, I've asked this question of audiences before. I said, you know, education is important, so is eating. So if, if the government decided we were going to set up 10,000 government grocery stores and we were going to assign you one based off of your address, and when you showed up to the government grocery store, you weren't going to get to pick any of your groceries. That would be decided by a government board based off of what they thought was best for your family. Now, if you didn't like something in your grocery bag, no big deal. Just go through a long, elaborate lobbying process, either of your local school board, your state legislature, whatever it is, and try to get the products you want or get the products you don't want out of your grocery bag. And oh, by the way, none of the employees at this government grocery store will will be rewarded based off of their creativity, work ethic, or ingenuity. They'll only be rewarded based off of seniority. Do you think that would be a good idea? And everyone, universally says, no, that sounds absurd. I'm like, it's exactly what we did with public education. You are assigned to government school. You have no say really, you have no real say over your curriculum, over your teachers, over your classes, like none of it. And then none of your teachers are rewarded based off of how good a job they do. They're just rewarded based off of seniority. So how can you tell me that this is, the, this is the sort of monopolistic government-run system that's going to produce a superior product. And how dare you tell me, one minute you tell me that the government is systematically racist and built upon white supremacy. And then the next minute you tell me, and that's the only sort of school that people of color should be able to send their kids to. Like, how do you reconcile these things? And so, no, I, I love that you bring that point out because I do think it shows an, an inherent contradiction and an intellectual inconsistency in the argument against uh, educational freedom. So here, here's my question. What do you think really lies at the root of this? Do you, do you think it's, um, like if we're being generous, do you think it's something where most people, this is just what they know, and therefore that's what they're comfortable with, they feel secure with? Or do you feel that there's some people that they, they have a very, you know, <laughs> they have an agenda, and they see the public school system as a way to push it? What, what do you think... Uh, and again, I know we want to be careful on, on questioning other people's motivations, so we're not speaking broadly, but as we look at these different groups, who, who are, like, what, what are the various motivations that you see as being, you know, you know, potentials? Yeah, so, I mean, look, a lot of people hear propaganda repeated over and over again uh, from the teachers' unions each and every year. So a lot of people just don't know the arguments, and when they hear these arguments and, and analogies about food stamp dollars following the decision of the family, higher education Pell Grants and the GI Bill following the decision of the student, pre-K dollars following the decision of the family, uh, just about every other industry, we have Medicaid dollars, Section 8 housing vouchers, the funding follows the decision of the family. Um, so a lot of them might not, just might not know, and you could really win over those types of people by using analogies and, 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 and pointing out the logical inconsistency of the other side and the hypocrisy as well, right? The, a lot of the, the people who argue the loudest against school choice exercise it for their own kids and send their own kids to private schools. Joe Biden, for example, he sent <laughs> his kids to private school, which is fine. And, and he attended private schools exclusively oh, uh, for McAuliffe. the most part. Terry McAuliffe, the, the guy who says parents shouldn't be telling schools what they should teach. He got to tell his kids' school what they should teach by being able to vote with his feet to a private school that works best for them. Um, 
But look, the, the root of all of this is power dynamics. And this it's important that we point out these other industries that allow funding to follow the decision of the family because look, a lot of the same people who support funding individuals as opposed to institutions when it comes to higher education, pre-K, and just about every other industry in the United States, they oppose it only when it comes to those in-between years of K-12 education. And the only difference, the only way that you can bridge that apparent logical inconsistency is that there's a difference of power dynamics. Mm. That choice is the, is the norm with higher education, pre-K, and just about every other industry in the United States. But choice threatens an entrenched special interest that would otherwise profit from receiving your children's education dollars, regardless of how well they do, regardless of how well the, uh, the how satisfied the families are. And what we've seen over the past year and a half uh, primarily in states like Virginia and California, regardless of whether they even open their doors for business. So, of course, they have a sweet deal. So they're going to fight as hard as possible to protect their monopoly at the expense of millions of families uh, in perpetuity. Uh, but we got a reality that we got to realize that the reality is that this is this is the problem here. And uh we, we should be pushing for the needs of the families as opposed to the desires of a system. And the only way to make the schools listen to the needs of the families is to fund the student directly, provide bottom-up accountability by empowering families to choose the schools or home-based education providers that work best for them. Only then will the schools have a, an incentive to cater to the needs of the families as opposed to the other way around, which we have in the current system. No, and that makes sense, and and it's it's amazing. You see that in every other area of our economy, when, when you know, producers are essentially competing for customers, it it incentivizes them to work harder, to work better, to innovate, to adapt. It allows other producers to adapt the good ideas that they see working in other areas, and they're able to do it very quickly. It's not like they have to wait on a legislative process to be able to implement these things. And so they're, they're far more responsive and, and adaptive. And, and it's amazing that one of the other, I, I want to go over one other argument I heard, which I thought was fascinating. And then um, I, I want to move on to another question here about Virginia elections and what this means going forward, since education was a prominent issue and it was a prominent issue on the Republican side. But there, there was this one argument, I was sitting in the General Assembly and I, and I heard one of my colleagues get up and say, you know, what the Republicans are looking for is they keep saying they want more competition in education, but competition creates winners and losers. And we don't want to think of any of our students as winners and losers. We want a strong public school that serves all. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, th this is what she honestly believes about the nature of competition. She looks at competition as a, a competition between the producer and the consumer. No, it's a competition, and in many cases, even cooperation between producers. So it's the, you may have one producer of education that does a better job than another one, but the, the consumer, the customer of the education, or like of any other product, they're the ones that win by virtue of the competition. Not to mention the fact, are you honestly trying to tell me that there's not winners and losers in monopolization? But like, I, it, it gave me just this incredible insight into, way, into the way that my, my colleague in the General Assembly was looking at this issue. When we said competition, what she heard was winners and losers. She didn't hear, no, 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 we're, we're actually gonna create a, situa a situation of choice that exists everywhere else in the mar marketplace or most places in the marketplace where, where the ability to choose, right? And, and again, it's not just a choice between government options. 
the ability for you as a customer to be able to take your money elsewhere incentivizes those institutions to compete for your dollars. And if you take that away, well, then all that's left is now it's just, now it's just the institution or the, or the producers essentially trying to manipulate politicians or, or appeal to politicians rather than the students. And, and it, again, it was just fascinating to me to watch someone honestly believe that competition was going to hurt students as opposed to providing them more opportunities. We already have winners and losers in the current system. Are, are they really trying to argue that public schools, uh, we shouldn't even really call them public schools because they're not public in any meaningful sense of the word. They're not public goods. They're rivalrous and excludable. They're not accountable to the public in any meaningful way. They're not uh, accessible to the public. Families have actually gone to jail for lying about their addresses to try to get their kids into better quote unquote public schools. They're run by the government. They're operated by the government. They're regulated by the government. They're funded by the government or at least the taxpayer. And they're assigned by the government. They're compelled by the government through compulsory education laws. They're government schools, not public schools. But look, there's already winners and losers in this current inequitable system where you have families that have access to the best government run schools. And then you have some families that are relegated to these horrible failing institutions that probably shouldn't uh, even have their doors open much longer because they, they failed students for so long. I mean, if you look at the nation's report card, the latest data suggests that only 15% of students in the U.S. are proficient in U.S. history, according to the NAEP assessment. Um, so there are winners and losers in the current system, but what you said is right as well, that the competition is among the providers the winners are the customers, just like with any other industry. Would your colleagues suggest that competition is bad in any other industry? Uh, should we force everybody to go to residentially assigned government-run grocery stores? Should we say that everybody must attend their local community college, that low-income kids, if they do a good job, that they shouldn't have the chance to go to Harvard? Would we ever argue that? Obviously not. Should we say that everybody has to go to one government-run hospital and that they shouldn't be able to take their Medicaid dollars to a private hospital that may have more specialization in, in what the, the, the individual needs for treatment? Obviously not. No one would make those arguments, so we shouldn't make these arguments for K-12 education either. It just goes to show you that this logical inconsistency really runs deep. And look, the reality is the preponderance of the evidence suggests that competition works in K-12 education too. There's 27 studies on the topic, and 25 of the 27 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the results in the public schools. So even public schools, in response to competition, will do a better job. School choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats, and public schools up their game in response to competition. This is a pretty clear result in the literature. So school choice doesn't destroy public schools. If anything, it makes them better. And a similar argument they'll say is that this steals money from the public schools, to which I respond, <laughs> the money doesn't belong to the government schools in the first place. The money is meant for educating the child, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution. Yeah. And you can still take your money to the public school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. <laughs> Unlike what was said about doctors before, it's actually true that in everywhere that there's been school choice, the public schools generally do a better job, and this is a win-win for everybody, for the families that get the options 
and for the families who choose for whatever reason to stay in the public school system. Well, yeah, and I, and I think that's that's funny. another thing we brought up a, a while back when we were talking to somebody. They were saying like, "Well, you're gonna you're gonna defund public schools." I'm like, "No, I'm, I'm funding education by by funding the student." I said, "What exactly do you mean?" I, well, if if that parent doesn't like the public school that they're currently assigned, and then they take their kids' dollars and they send it to another school, well, then the school they left won't get those dollars. I'm like. Yes, that is correct. That's the, the school, point. The school that is not educating the child will not get those dollars for educating that child. What, what alternative would you suggest? We should keep sending money to a school that is not educating children? Like, is that, is that the... But, but it's amazing how people will say this and, and, and give, like, not even give a second thought to the just complete absurdity of the implications that they're, that they're suggesting. And, again, I, I find it fascinating, but... What I also find encouraging is that I think a lot of parents right now, and, and, and you know, we've said this before, a lot of the people that were against school choice, that were very much advocates of you know, government-run schools, you know, they, they constantly campaign on this idea that we're, they're the ones that really care about education, they're the ones that really, really care about your students. And so that was the narrative they ran on. Well, then they got power in Virginia. For the first time in a long time, they got power, and they implemented what they're going to do. So all of a sudden, now we have that intersection of your campaign narrative with the actual policies you're going to implement. And it turns out a lot of parents who were not hardcore conservatives, they weren't out there with Trump stickers on their cars, they were none of that. They, they, were, they were people across the entire political spectrum, but they saw the negative impact on their students, whether it was trying to get into you know, Thomas Jefferson, whether it was advanced placement uh, programs, whether it was some of this curriculum and some of the stuff their kids were coming home with, whether it was some of the stuff in their kids' libraries. And what was fascinating is those were the parents that were standing up and going, hey, I, I got a problem with this. And the response was, well, you're a racist. And they're like, wait a second. Like, <laughs> and half of them were like, but I'm a minority. <laughs> I, all I want is a better. So they got treated with just utter disdain and contempt by people that had told them for you know, decades that we're the ones that really care about your kid's education. And so they lost. They lost on that narrative. They lost on policy because parents rebelled against it. And then they certainly lost in the arrogance that they displayed toward those parents for bringing up these reasonable issues. Now, that caused a, a massive turnaround in Virginia, right? We, everybody, every political pundit, you know, a, a year ago would have told you that Virginia was not just trending blue, but it was it was heading there full steam ahead because they had controlled every aspect of the legislature, they controlled the governor's office, mm -hmm. they they were implementing things that were just very very outside of the norm typically in Virginia with respect to everything from gun policy to life to healthcare to energy policy and to education. All of a sudden, that got wiped out in two years. And, and now, for the first time in over a decade, you know, there's a Republican governor, Republican lieutenant governor, Republican attorney general, Republican House of Delegates, still a Democrat-controlled Senate because they weren't up for election this year. But mm -hmm. here's what I'm leading all this up to. First time in a long time I can rem remember Republicans really winning the election on education. And Republicans campaigning on school choice. That was one of the major things about getting more parental involvement, empowering parents, empowering students. And they won on this in a state nobody thought they would win. Now it comes time to how do you deliver on that promise? And I, I'm hearing a lot of talk about charter schools. And, and I, I'm fine with that. I, I, I like the idea of expanding charter schools. My problem is, is that school choice cannot be in my opinion, school choice cannot be relegated to 
a slightly larger list of government-controlled options. And so, in your opinion, what does delivering on school choice in a way that will have the greatest impact on students and parents, what does that look like? Yeah, the gold standard of school choice or the purest form that I would argue and that most people in the movement would argue of funding students as opposed to systems is something called an ESA. Some states call it an education scholarship account. Some students, some people call it an education savings account. New Hampshire just enacted something called an education freedom account. But it's all the same kind of idea that the money that would have followed you to your government run school instead goes to something called an education savings account. And you can choose to your public school, if you want, or your government run school. You can spend all the money there or the money would follow the child to the education savings account. You could use that money for any approved education expenditure. So you could use that for private school tuition and fees, private tutoring, textbooks, other instructional material, special needs students can use it for special needs therapies, any approved education expenditure. It moves the conversation from school choice to education choice, because let's be real, schooling is just one way to achieve an education. And in some ways, schooling could be antithetical to education if it does a bad job, like we've seen in the current system. But the education savings accounts are the kind of the new frontier of educational freedom. And the number of states this year that enacted education savings accounts actually doubled from five states to 10 states. And several other states, 19 states total, have enacted or expanded in 2021 some type of program to fund students as opposed to systems. We're calling 2021 the year of school choice. And one of the best parts about it is it's probably the teachers union's own fault. They've overplayed their hand and, and they've awakened a sleeping giant, this new special interest group, parents that want more of a say in their kids' education. Usually special interest group means something nefarious and it's some someone uh, pushing for for goodies from the government. But look, parents are a, a new power player in, in town and they're not going away anytime soon. They've seen what's going on in the kids' classroom. They felt powerless in 2020 with the school closures and they don't want to feel powerless ever again. So it would be wise for politicians to really listen to these parents and what they want. And look, these parents have realized that there isn't any good reason to fund closed, failing institutions when you can fund the students directly instead. Support for, for funding students directly is at an all-time high. Nationwide, we've seen a 10 percentage point jump in support for school choice policies, according to the latest Real Clear Opinion Research numbers relative to April of 2020. And this is the way to do it. Education savings accounts are the gold standard of educational freedom. So, and, and again, I think that makes perfect sense. And you, you, you brought something up in that that is interesting. I want, I want to kind of go into this a little bit because there's a distinction that needs to be made that seldom is whenever we're talking about education. And it's this conflating of terms between education and schooling. Now, that's not to say that there's something you know, wrong with schooling. There isn't. But we all understand that education is a far broader term than just schooling. And yet, whenever we get into these conversations within the legislature or in the media or whatnot, they're used almost synonymously. You know, public education is public school. And it's like, well, no, schooling is one of the ways that you get your education, but it's not, it certainly shouldn't be the exclusive way that you receive your education. And, and I think what happened during COVID with the lockdowns and then, and then when kids went back to school and there were still mask mandates and there was all these other questions about, you know, separation and could you play together at recess and all, and all this other question, the parents, many parents were just tired of. 
Um, and then we look at all the numbers for the learning loss, which has just been devastating. I think there's a lot of parents saying, wait a second, okay, I, I like the fact that you're doing a charter school, but that still doesn't answer the question of what happens when you close everything down to include the charter school because of a new variant. And now I have no mechanism by which to get my kids the education that they're still going to need during that time. And I think that's where the, the, the ESA really comes into effect. It says that, look, if you're going to shut down and you're going to essentially deny me access to, in Virginia, what is a constitutionally protected service, well, then what's my alternative? And, and, and so I need educational alternative. Parents need educational alternatives that go beyond dropping their kid off at a bus stop or at a, at a building. Yeah, Nick, and, and that's important to point out that charter schools are a good step in the right direction, but for most listeners, they might not even know what a charter school is. They're kind of a quasi-public, quasi-private schools. They can be privately operated, but they're taxpayer-funded uh, a lot of the times, and including in Virginia. In order to open up, you got to get approved by the neighboring district, your competitor, which is a, an, a, an absurd um, conflict of interest. Just imagine if if you were a Burger King and you wanted to open up, you had to get a approval from the McDonald's next door. Yeah. Of course, the McDonald's would come up with a thousand reasons for why they didn't want you to open up. But their main reason, obviously, that they probably wouldn't say out loud is that they don't want to have to compete with you. Yeah. So in Virginia, I think you only have like seven or eight charter schools total right now. So there's there's ways to tweak the law to allow for more charter schools to enter the market. But, but what you're saying is right at the same time that even if you get a bunch of charter schools, on paper, they're still, quote unquote, public schools by definition, according to Virginia law and in every other state that I've seen with charter schools as well. So they're very they can they're subject to regulation. They're subject to control by uh, the government. And that could be a problem. Like when you have a, a covid disaster, you could have all the the um, pri uh, the charter schools closed and the private schools open. And while this is a step in the right direction, it, it can't be the only thing that Virginia does going forward. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity where we have a groundswell of support for educational freedom and charter schools are just one part of that. But the purest form, the best way to go forward that most states are introducing uh, bills with this is this idea of the money truly following the child and uh, in the form of an education savings account would be the best way forward. And, and with education savings accounts in some states, you can use them for private schools, but you can also use them for charter schools as well. Mm -hmm. And you can also use them for courses at public schools. You can really piece together the education with an education savings account. Um, so this offers the most flexibility and customization on the part of the parents. It's the way to truly empower parents with their kids education. No, I, I think, and again, as, as I look at all of this, what, what the goal for me has always been with respect to educational freedom, and, and it, it's part of the reason why I find the accusation that I would have some sort of nefarious racist purpose in, in doing this so offensive, it, is because when I got out of the military and we weren't sure where we were going to move, we started homeschooling our kids. And then we found homeschool co-ops. It, it, it wasn't a permanent solution for us at, at the beginning. It was just something that we were looking to do. Um, and all of a sudden, we, we, we fell in love with it. Not all aspects. Believe me, there are moments when we look at our kids, we're like, I don't know where you're going to go to school tomorrow, but it's not going to be here. right? But what we loved about it was the idea that 
when one of our children was having a problem with uh, math or with English or with science or whatever it was, we were able to adapt the curriculum in order to get them the help that they needed in the areas in which they struggled and to allow them to go as far and as fast and as detailed as they could possibly go in the areas where they were strong. And, and it helped give us a profile for what each one of our children needed. And here's what I found. With my three children, and I have a 19-year-old, a 16-year-old, and, and, and my youngest daughter's about to turn 14, the way they learn is significantly different. They came from the same two people, but the way that they learn is significantly different. Their interests are significantly different. The help that they needed on different courses, significantly different. And because we weren't constrained by a government-controlled monopoly, when we saw a problem, we were able to respond right away. And by the way, I don't mean an expensive solution. We were able to find good, easy, affordable solutions, tutors, curriculum, textbooks, YouTube videos, Khan Academy, like a number of things to be able to help equip our children to be able to get an education that gave them a well-rounded experience, but also set them up for what they wanted to do in the future. I want every parent to be able to have that. And, and I especially want parents that have been trapped for generations now in a failing school that they were assigned by their government, I want them to be able to break free of that. And I find it just horribly intellectually dishonest for someone to tell me, no, it's better for that child to stay put in the system that th you control as a politician, not them as a parent. And so here, here's, what it, here's what I would like to kind of like, to once again, the whole purpose of this podcast is to provide people the arguments to be able to defend a free society, to be able to defend greater choice and education among a variety of other issues. What would you recommend they study? So again, we're talking about a lot of people. They're not going to get their PhD in economics or education, right? They've got other things. They've got busy lives, but they want to be informed. They want to be able to talk about this. Where do you send them to be able to get more information, whether it's a YouTube channel, a book? Where do you send them? Follow me on Twitter. I tweet about this nonstop. I'll, I share the uh, updates on different bills that are floating around legislators. Legislatures they're already starting. I, I tweeted out um, this week that uh, Missouri and South Carolina they've already introduced bills, pre-filed bills for this coming session in January. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of states with action on the school choice front this year. And you know, 2021 was the year of school choice, but 2022 might be a repeat year because look, the parents are mobilized. They're not going away. They're not going to forget what happened over the past year and a half. And they're going to fight harder for the right to educate they, their kids as they see fit, harder than anybody will fight to take that right away from them. So at DeAngelis Corey is my Twitter account. But you can also, if you want to just study more on school choice, I have a co-edited book with Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey. It's called School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. Uh, it's available at Amazon. You could just Google school choice myths and you'll be able to find it. And then lastly, there's a there's been so much of a push towards educational freedom. One one evidence is through the polls that we've seen. One some more evidence is is the Virginia elections. Some more evidence comes from just the amount of states that have expanded school choice programs this year. It's been at least 19 states now in 2021. And some more evidence is that there's this new education freedom pledge, edfreedompledge.com. Or if you want to type the whole thing out, it's educationfreedompledge.com. And nearly 300 legislators from at least 30 different states, including Nick, uh, have signed this pledge to support parental rights and educational freedom, including things like education savings accounts, 
going forward. And uh, over 2,000 voters have signed up to support, to pledge to support candidates who support these policies that embrace and empower, uh, embrace educational freedom and empower families to choose the best education for their kid. Edfreedompledge.com. So yeah, I want everyone here as you're listening to this, once you're, whether you're driving, whatever you're doing, once you get time, go look that up. Also, just to, so you, you get it again, it's at DeAngelis Corey, right, on Twitter. And the reason why um, this is important is because he's absolutely right. Corey is constantly on there giving updates about what is happening all across the country. He's also on there kind of debunking some of the arguments. And I, I want to do a special plug, too, for, for the, the school choice myths because that's what I think hangs up a lot of people. That's what causes, and look, this is a tactic that has been used by the left for a long time now, and that is anytime you disagree with them on a policy, they accuse you of racism, they accuse you of bigotry, they accuse you of sexism. And they're not doing that because you've actually demonstrated any tendencies along those, those lines. They're doing it because the moment you are put off your game, the moment you feel like you've got to play defense, you sit down and you shut up and you stop saying anything, or you're careful about what you say in the future. And getting books like this that will help you debunk those myths is what's going to empower you so that when someone comes up from the left and says, oh, well, you're a racist, you're like, no, 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 stop right there. I'm not putting up with that because that has nothing to do with what I want. In fact, I have some questions for you about bigotry. If you're going to insist that the country is both systematically racist and that people of color should only be allowed to send their kids to government-run schools, because if that's going to be the position you take, then you're going to have to explain your position. You're going to have to explain why you're not racist. You can't accuse me of that, right? And that's the sort of, that's what we want. We need empowered advocates. And so when you've got people like Cordy Angelis that have done this work, that have compiled this information, they put it in an easy place for you to be able to find, for you to be able to share with others, take advantage of it. Because what we're looking for now, what we need now more than ever, is not just an intellectual commitment to these ideas. It's not just a good intellectual argument for these ideas. We need people that are going to step out boldly and refuse to be afraid by those that would intimidate you and get you out of the marketplace of ideas because that's exactly what they're doing. And quite frankly, we're at a point where our children cannot afford for us to sit on the sidelines. Corey, I want to thank you so much, not just for being on today, but for all of the work that you do here. Would love to follow up with you sometime in the future, maybe after session, maybe do a recap of what we managed to do in Virginia because, you know, again, it's going to be guys like you. You, you help make the argument for why we, we should elect pro-educational freedom legislators and now you're going to play that important role of keeping us accountable. So thank you very much for all you do. That's right. Happy to join you anytime. Thank you so much, Nick. All right. Once again, thank you for joining us on Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Please like, share, subscribe. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, all the different places. Also, make sure you're going over to Twitter and signing up to follow DeAngela, at DeAngelis Corey on Twitter. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. 
Eagle. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.